We're starting this morning, chapter 2 in our confession. And in, in the second chapter of our confession, we deal with what's known as theology proper, or the doctrine of God. And I want this today to, in a sense, set the table for that study. Uh, today and then over the next four weeks, we'll look at the three paragraphs. And it may seem you know, deceptively simple that there's only three paragraphs on the doctrine of God. But as we begin to dive into that, it is, it is more than in an eternity we could ever get to the bottom of. Uh, the riches and the depth of the mind of God and his mercies uh, will take us an eternity to explore, and we will never exhaust it. So let's pray and ask for our creator, our helper, our redeemer, to make himself known to us uh, through his word and, and through uh, this, this helpful guide. It's a guide to us. It's a tool for us to help understand the scriptures better as we study our confession. So let's pray. Our God and our Father, we are so thankful that you have made yourself known to us. We, we are not able, even with what you have made known, we are not able to understand you as we ought to. We are not able to understand you as you truly are because you are beyond understanding. Only the Spirit can discern the mind of God. We are creatures and limited in our capacity, and yet we also confess to you that our, our own sinful nature and the particular sins that remain in us hinder us even further from studying carefully and understanding who you are. I pray that you would give us uh, a sense of wonder, a sense of awe, a sense of glory as we tread upon this most sacred ground describing and articulating our triune God. Uh, we ask for your help and for uh, faithful attention and clarity of, of mind and, and words as we contemplate these things together. Amen. So what to do today is, is an overview of, of chapter 2. As I said, there are three, chap, or three paragraphs here in the chapter entitled, Of God and the Holy Trinity. And I want to approach this with, with three different basic headings. One is, is the background. Uh, what's going on, because we've, we know this is a historical document, and historical documents have to be interpreted, and the words didn't just spontaneously appear, we want to know what was the background. What's the background of the words that we find here? We find in our confession some very technical language. And so we want to be able to, to discern what, what is meant by some of these technical terms. We won't, we won't get to all that today. We want to just kind of think about what's, what's behind these words and what's behind the, the phrases and the descriptions that are used here. And secondly, what's the approach? What's the overall guiding philosophy as as our forefathers sat down to edit and compose these statements. What was their approach? What was their methodology? And then thirdly, what was the goal? Uh, it's fine to write these things down, but what's the purpose of it? And for our study, you know, we because frankly, the things is that we, as we read these things and as we study these things, one of, one of our natural uh, reactions or responses will be to scratch our head and say, I, this is beyond my comprehension. And, and you would be right to think that, because it is. But at the same time, we might be tempted to think, well then, if I can't understand it, it's probably not that important. Or it's, it's not crucial that I understand the words 
because I can't understand the full weight of their meaning anyway, maybe I don't need to pay that much attention to it. And so one of the things we want to think about is what's the goal, not only of the men who wrote this, but what's the goal of us here in 2023 in Conroe, Texas, studying these things and and wanting to internalize them. So as we work through this over the next couple weeks, those are some of the things that we want to have in mind about the whole, the chapter as a whole. What's, what's its background and context? What's the approach, the theological and philosophical approach to it? And then what's, what's the end? What's the purpose? What's the goal of it? I'm going to read just the first paragraph for today in chapter 2 of God and the Holy Trinity. Uh, you can also find a copy of this in the, the Blue Trinity hymnals if you don't have one, either uh, in print or on your phone. Here, here are the words that have been handed down to us. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will, for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. Dr. Renahan observes that Richard Mueller has written two volumes just setting the theological history and context for these three paragraphs uh, and for the doctrine contained therein. Two volumes uh, containing over 1,100 pages. So that helps us temper a little bit our expectations for the next few weeks. Uh, I don't intend to cover 1,100 pages worth of material with you. So you may be relieved or or not at that statement, but I don't, I don't intend to be that exhaustive. But what I want to do is, is set before you some of the background and some of the tools for, for your own further study, and also so that you can begin to apply these very things in your own reading, uh, uh, reading through the Scriptures and in your own family devotions. We, we ought to train ourselves and discipline ourselves to think in terms of theology proper, to think about who God is. Uh, we, we, we often jump to our, what has God commanded us to do? And, and those are, it is important for us as Christians to observe our duties, to observe the law by the grace of Christ. And yet, if we start there, we've lost a sense of our motivation in doing that. Uh, we want to understand, first of all, who God is and, and allow his, his essence, his isness to overwhelm us. Dr. Renahan, making this observation, 
he's he's doing this to to say that we we want to temper our expectations as we go into a study uh, because um, this one man wrote two volumes and hundreds and hundreds of other men have written many more pages on these matters. We are in deep, weighty, um, deep, weighty matters, uh, matters of great significance. We are on uh, very holy ground. So we're not going to be exhaustive today or over the next, uh, I think, four weeks as we work through uh, this, this material. But let's think about the background to chapter 2. One of the things that we find here is that our, our Baptist forefathers were very intentional uh, to state those things that were universally accepted as orthodox regarding God. Our, our Baptists were not plowing new ground. They were, not, they were not setting out to articulate new doctrine about God, nor were they setting out to even articulate old doctrine using new, new words or different words. All three of the major Puritan confessions express almost word for word the very same things. And when I say the three main Puritan confessions, I mean the Westminster Confession of Faith, which in many ways is sort of the granddaddy of, of the other Puritan confessions, that would also include the Savoy Declaration, which was the, the Congregationalists in, uh, in, in Britain, and then also, of course, our, our Baptist fathers. What, one of the things that we have to remind ourselves of, and if you've been on social media at all, uh, especially Twitter, uh, you have probably seen some unprofitable exchanges uh, regarding theology proper and, and some of the assumptions and background and historical context that all flows into this doctrine. One of the things that's helpful to remember, there was no, when we study the Reformation that began with Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the door of the church at Wittenberg, and that sparked a Reformation. Do you know what was not Reformed? The doctrine of God. The Reformers made no changes, no alterations, no modifications, made no reformation to, to theology proper. They recognized the, and I'm going to use the little c, Catholic doctrine of God as accurate and faithful to the Scriptures. Rome had actually not lost the doctrine of God. They lost the gospel, which is no small thing to lose, but they not lost the doctrine of God. So sometimes we end up with sort of this false dilemma that either we go to Rome and share uh, doctrines with Rome, or we reject all of that and we, we stand on the, the ground of Protestant doctrine. Well, Protestant doctrine and the doctrine of Rome with respect to God is the same. And that shouldn't, shouldn't alarm us. Uh, that shouldn't frighten us. God preserved, providentially, uh, his own name. Uh, he preserved the doctrine of himself um, more than anything else, or, or perhaps in comparison to other things, that was preserved. So the confession, the background here, the confession is asserting what we could say is Catholic or universal doctrine regarding God. And our Baptist fathers were very careful to state their specific agreement with other churches, and particularly other Reformed churches, but that was clearly their goal. And they have made here, we have here in these three paragraphs, a clear statement of what has come to be known as classical theism. Anybody heard that term, classical theism? It, it's, it's, a, it's not an ancient term. Uh, it's not a term that any of our, our forefathers necessarily would have used. 
uh, they just would have accepted, which is part of the reason it's now called classic, because they just would have accepted that uh, as, as the tradition that they received and inherited uh, from those who've gone before them. But these things are, our confession is undoubtedly, indisputably, a, a document that asserts classical theism. And, and that, that's a reference to an entire body of understanding and theology on which these words rest and stand. Listen to, the, to this. This is a statement from the foreword to our confession of faith. This is one of my favorite statements in that foreword. <clears throat> we did, in like manner, conclude it best to follow their example. Now, I'm, I'm jumping in the middle of a, a paragraph. But what they're talking about is they recognize that there were two um, prevailing confessions at the time. The Westminster Confession of Faith, written in 1646, and the Savoy Declaration published in 1658, and then the Baptists are coming on. They first wrote this in 1677 and published in 1689, which is where we get the name for it. So they recognized there were two different, there were two other confessions. So the pronouns here are referring to those other confessions of faith. We did in like manner conclude it best to follow their example, meaning the Congregationalists sought to follow Westminster. We sought to follow their example in making use of the very same words with them. So this is Congregationalists and Presbyterians. Both in these articles, which are very many, wherein our faith and doctrine are the same with theirs. This we did the more abundantly, listen to this, to manifest our consent with both in all the fundamental articles of the Christian religion, as also with many others whose orthodox confessions have been published to the world on the behalf of the Protestant in diverse nations and cities. And also, so they're saying, we, we wanted to demonstrate publicly our unanimity and uniformity with respect to these doctrines. Not only the, the, the ways that they've expressed themselves, but even the order of them. So there's a reference to the articles. The, the article headings are largely the same when you look at the confessions side by side. But listen to this. And also, to convince all that we have no itch to clog religion with new words. I love some of the old phrases. We have no itch to clog religion with new words. Now what do they mean by that? Well, they explain that. But do readily acquiesce in that form of sound words which hath been in consent with the Holy Scriptures used by others before us. In other words... Others before us have sought to find appropriate words to describe accurately and faithfully what the Scriptures teach, and we don't think it profitable to add new words to that. Those words have been tested. They've been vetted publicly uh, over generations. Let's use the same words. We're not trying to be cute or novel. They go on, hereby declaring before God, angels, and men our hearty agreement with them in that wholesome Protestant doctrine which, with so clear evidence of scriptures, they have asserted. Now, they're referencing the confession as a whole here, and so that's the reason for the language of Protestant doctrine. But when we come to theology proper, the same principle holds here, except that they also would recognize that this was not a uniquely Protestant doctrine. So the first thing we want to see in terms of the background the main takeaway here to the background of this is there's nothing new here. In fact, you can go back to the ancient creeds. This is in complete agreement with the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Council of Chalcedon, uh, and all the way through the ancient ecumenical creeds that, that teach and speak and articulate the doctrine of God. 
often words are used that are not found in Scripture, but they're words that are necessary to articulate and expand upon what is said in the Scriptures in order to create a boundary against the heretics. So that's the background. That's your main takeaways. There's nothing new here. Uh, this, this doctrine is not a product of the Reformation. Later in the book, later in our confession, when we get to doctrines like justification, obviously that's new. Or it's not, it's not new, it's biblical, but it's a recovery. It's a reformation of what the church had lost. When we're speaking about chapter 2 in the doctrine of God, this, is not, this doesn't represent a recovery. This does not represent a reformation. Uh, this doctrine had not, thankfully, had not been lost. So what's the approach? How, as, as, you know, in, your, in your mind's eye, kind of think about a, a group of, of roughly 100 churches in the mid-17th century, Baptist churches, sitting down to compose a confession of faith. What was their approach? As, as, and before them, any faithful Christian, any faithful church, any faithful theologian, to sit down and try to articulate what the Scriptures teach about God. Who wants to get their big chief tablet out and a pencil and, and dive into that task? Go, all right, I'll just give, you a, give you a week and, and come back and, and write me a summary of all the Scriptures teach about God. And, and, and confine it to three brief paragraphs. A, a double-dog dare you. It's a monumental task, isn't it? And, and it's helpful, I think, to understand a little bit about their approach and, and why and how they did what they did. Uh, Dr. Renahan observes this. He says, it's common, it was a commonly accepted practice for theologians first to discuss the existence of God, moving second to his names, essence, and attributes, and third to the Trinitarian persons. Now, but kind of have that in, in, in your mind. I'm going to read it again. It was, it was accepted practice by theologians. This was some of the, the accepted methodology. In any discipline, whether it's medicine or physics or uh, instruction or, or plumbing or electricians or whatever, you, you have accepted methodologies, accepted sequence of things. And one of the, the accepted methodology among theologians was to discuss first the very existence of God. And in a, in, in a, in a few moments, I'm going to have us turn to Acts chapter 17 when Paul's there at Mars Hill, and this is precisely what Paul does. He looks first at the essence of God, his existence. Then, moving to his names, and then to his essence and attributes, and third, to the Trinitarian persons. Dr. Renahan makes this observation. As we come to think through the doctrine presented in chapter 2, we must contemplate a basic reality. Our fathers understood that any contemplation of God must be done with reverence and awe. Our triune Lord is not a laboratory specimen to be dissected and examined. I'm going to read that again. Our, our triune Lord is not a laboratory specimen to be dissected and examined. We ought to have a sense of, of reverence to the task itself. And I think that our our fathers in the faith uh, of all stripes had 
that kind of reverence, and that, that shows up in the words if they choose. Renahan goes on, We cannot treat him in this way. Rather, he is a glorious God who has revealed himself to us in his own manner. We receive from him everything he has made known, remembering that we will never be able to contemplate him as he truly is. Our knowledge of God will only ever be according to his revelation of himself. God has revealed himself according to the scriptures. God has revealed himself in two ways. One we might call the book of nature. The heavens declare the glories of God. Uh, Paul says in, in Romans 1 that man is without excuse because even the invisible attributes of God from the beginning have been plain to man. Something about his deity is, is plain. Uh, the fact that God is good. He sends rain to fall on the wicked and the just. The fact that God provides for even the, the beasts of the field indicates that God is good. Uh, the fact that, that the, the works of the law is written on man's heart and man's own conscience testifies to the fact that to, to kill his neighbor is, is wrong. To take another man's wife is wrong. To steal, to lie, to, to cheat, those things are inherently wrong. We used to know that, right? That, that is written on the hearts of man. And, and by those means, man is able to see something about the very nature of God, that he is good, that he is just, that he's merciful. And so God has revealed himself in, in nature, but he has also revealed himself more fully, infallibly, in the scriptures. So we, first, we have to recognize that whether we're looking at the book of nature or whether we are reading and hearing in the special revelation in the Bible, that we will never fully be able to know God as he really is. Now, there's at least two reasons for that. Paul testifies in Romans 11, verse 33, which will be also be our, our benediction today, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Only God can comprehend himself as he truly is. So the first reason that even in eternity we will not know God fully, we will not know God comprehensively, is because a creature could never know God. Only the Spirit of God can know the mind of God. So our creatureliness, even our glorified, perfected, sinless creatureliness will still be limited. And so the mercies of God, we're told in the Psalms, are, will be new every morning. We will contemplate for eternity. That, that, that's mind-boggling, isn't it? But for all of eternity, we will still be growing and learning and delighting more and more uh, in, in our knowledge and understanding of who God is. It's an inexhaustible well. So the first reason that we, we have to approach this, this subject matter, knowing we will not comprehend all of it. We, we may, the, the, the example I've heard, the illustration I've heard in several occasions is, think about a, a large, magnificent tree. A tree that we, we stopped uh, on the way home 
this, this past week, we stopped uh, just for a, a bathroom break, and it turned into a lunch break because they had wonderful picnic tables at a Dairy Queen of all places uh, under these massive, majestic live oak trees. And I think three or four of us together would not have been able to get our arms around this tree. It was magnificent, several of them. And it, there was a sense in which we could not, not one, in, any one of us could never have comprehended that tree. We could not have wrapped our arms around it we could apprehend it. We could have stood back, especially at a distance, and seen it, and seen all of it, but we couldn't comprehend it. And that, that, that illustration falls short, obviously, but in a way, we can apprehend God. We can see, in a sense, Him as He's revealed Himself in the Scripture, but we can never comprehend Him. We can never get our arms around Him, so to speak. So we, that's, and, and that's, first of all, attributed to our creatureliness. But there's another factor you know what it is, right? What's the other thing that hinders us from knowing God as we ought to? Sin. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Our fall. In Adam, our fall. Our, our minds are not what they ought to be. Our reason is not what it ought to be. Our, the, the, the sin that remains in us, our original sin, the corrupting nature of that sin, but also those particular sins those particular infirmities that we possess. Uh, particularly as, as we, you know, you get older, you realize you're, you know, not as sharp as you used to be. I used to be able to do long division in my head. Can't do that anymore. Part of that's a function of relying upon digital devices to give you those answers. Part of that is just the noetic effects of the fall. Uh, a, a man's mind, a woman's mind over time is not as sharp as it once was. I marvel at what my kids are able to memorize. And then as we get older, you realize you got all this other stuff. you got mortgage payments and, and calendars and obligations and other things occupying your mind, and your children don't have that yet. And so they can just soak up, and, which is just another reason to catechize them now, have them memorizing Scripture now while, they, while the, the concrete is, is still wet. Uh, press in those things that you want indelibly imprinted upon them. So our, the second limitation is not only our creatureliness, but our fall into sin has separated us even further from a right and full understanding of God. Now, what are the consequences of that? The consequences of the fact that, number one, we're limited by creatureliness. We're limited by our finitude. And we are hindered by our sinful nature and by actual sins that, that still stain us. The consequences of that are that we are dependent upon God's self-revelation, holy. There's nothing that we can say with respect to our understanding of God. We can't say of anything, we can't say of those things that any of them are self-derived. Anything we know of God, we cannot take credit for it, can we? It is because of God's mercy having revealed himself. Now think about that. God was under no obligation. None to make himself known to sinful creatures. I mean, do you walk out in your backyard every now and then and, and think, you know, I really have an obligation to this ant to, 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 to you know, introduce myself and, and explain to him who I am and what I'm doing and what my goals are and my purposes and plan? No. And, and the gap between you and that ant is very small compared to the gap between us and our Creator. Yeah, God condescended to you. He condescended to me to make himself known. 
We have to marvel at that. So that's the first logical consequence of, of our creatureliness and our sinful condition is that we are wholly dependent upon God revealing himself to us. But secondly, another consequence is we are dependent upon receiving this doctrine that's been handed down to us. We are dependent on God's revelation, both special and general, or special and natural, and also we are dependent upon those who have gone before us and put these things into writing in such a way that they've stood the test of time. Because sometimes the difference between orthodoxy and heresy can be one misplaced word. And have you ever heard the illustrations that say, well, the Trinity is like uh, water, exists in three states. You have ice and water and steam. Or the Trinity is like an egg. You have a shell and you have the yolk. You have... Anytime you hear somebody say the Trinity is like, just, just stop. Just tell them, stop, 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 stop. God is not. There's not one of those illustrations that work. They may sound good at first. You ever heard of the, have you ever watched any of the Lutheran satire? Little cartoon videos? If you haven't, go go they're on YouTube, go look them up. But it's there's it's it's little Irish uh, cartoon characters and they're dealing with the doctrine of God and dealing with um, some of the, the common errors in uh, the formulations of theology pro- proper. So we are dependent upon receiving that doctrine. And it's helpful for us to study the words that are here, along with the scriptural references, so that we can, uh, both at our own private devotions, our family devotions, but also any who are in a position of teaching or preaching, uh, ought to, to refer back to these things regularly to help guard yourself against error uh, when we're thinking about and teaching about incomprehensible things. We're dealing with the very mind of God. We want to help guard ourselves from drifting into error. Thinking back to the statement I read earlier, I'm not going to reread all of it from the foreword of our confession, but, but recognize something, there's a specific phrase that they use, we do readily acquiesce in that form of sound words which hath been in consent with the Holy Scriptures used by others before us. Does that sound familiar, that form of sound words? That's, that's almost exactly what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1. He says, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Paul commends to Timothy a pattern of sound words. Timothy, it is not your it is not your responsibility as a pastor or as a theologian to go out and mine the scriptures on your own and create sound words. The responsibility is to receive them and hold fast to them, guard them. Paul says something similar in in his letter to Titus in Titus 1.9, with respect to the qualifications of an elder, an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So in terms of the manner or the methodology of, our, of chapter 2, the overall approach to chapter 2, 
they had in mind a receiving, holding fast, guarding, and transmitting this pattern of sound words. They had, to use their own words, no itch to clog religion with new words. And I think it's wise for us to follow the same pattern. I have often been grieved when I have, it's, it's kind of a, a part-time you know, hobby or pastime to read statements of faith on church websites. Sometimes it's really depressing. But to look at a, at, a, at a church, and that's usually what I do. If I hear about a church or somebody's attending that church, or the I, I, first thing I do is go, oh, what do we believe? And it's often sad. Uh, it will maybe just a handful of very brief general bullet points. Sometimes it's more comprehensive, but there will be a statement about the Trinity or the statement about God that's horrible. It's error. And they don't even realize it's error because they've, they've tried to be, sometimes they just try to be clever and, and articulate things in kind of a, a hip, modern kind of way. Other times I think they've been trying, they're trying to summarize and trying to paraphrase some of these things in such a way that maybe they're more accessible, and yet they end up doing unwittingly, doing violence to very important doctrines. So with that, there's another just a, a side note. Um, in fact, I was listening to a podcast with, with Dr. Renahan recently, and he, he was asked about modern translations or modern paraphrases of the confession. And I thought he had some, some, some helpful things to say on that, that matter, uh, one of which was we really ought to be careful with them. They're, they're not a bad thing. And it may be that for especially a new believer to hand somebody that and say, this is a good summary of, of the beliefs, and this is a, an accessible, easier way to read it. But one of the chief concerns is, is that in those modern translations, a lot of times you lose the technical language. You lose the technical language. So let's say you're studying to be a medical doctor, and you have a medical textbook. It has medical terms. Some of those Latin terms that are really long. You know, you had that discussion with your doctor sometimes, and you, somebody's coming out of surgery, and the doctor's explaining to you, and says, Doc, I need that in English. I don't understand what you've said, because he's using very technical language, but, and that's fine for him to say, okay, for, for a layman here, I'm going to use a more uh, rounded general language to explain. But do you really want your surgeons speaking to one another with those very general terms? I think I'd rather my, my cardiologists be speaking in very specific language, very precise language, wouldn't you? And so what we're doing, particularly with respect to the doctrine of God, we don't want to generalize to such a degree that we lose what those technical words intended to express. Because often the technical language is a reference back to much older creeds and confessions. And we don't want to lose those technical things. So I'm not saying don't use the, the modern translations, but particularly when, with respect to the doctrine of God, don't rely upon that alone. Does that make sense? Uh, be willing to do the harder work of, of looking at some of the older technical language. And lastly, so we've looked at the, the, the background and context. We've looked at the approach of the chapter. Well, what's the goal? Uh, I mean, why, why study this? Uh, it's not just to fill our, our heads with knowledge. What, what's the end result? What ought the end result to be? Look back at, at, at paragraph 1 and just take note of some of the language that's used. The Lord our God is but only, or but one only living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of himself, 
infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by anybody himself, a most pure spirit. And that word most appears multiple times throughout this chapter, particularly in this paragraph. And, 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 the, and the word most doesn't mean relative to. Um, you know, we could, as we go through the lunch line here in a few hours, somebody might say, well, this is my most favorite dish. What does it mean it's empirically or objectively better? It's my preference, meaning I, I like this one. I like the brownies better than the cupcakes. But it doesn't mean that brownies are inherently better. But the way that this word is used in the confession, it, it's a superlative word. It means, it means the utmost. It is, is infinitely superior. And in some ways, there is no comparison. So he is a most pure spirit. Is he the only spirit? No. The angels are spirit beings. We have a soul. We have an immaterial part. If, 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 if you die today, according, and you're in Christ, your spirit, your immaterial part, will be with Christ immediately. But is your spirit most pure? Even glorified. Even sinless and spotless and perfected. It will never be most pure. That's attributed to God alone. So you see, we're stretching at the limits of language, aren't we? How do we, how do we express, particularly in, in short words, that God is infinitely, incomprehensibly pure? We also see, in addition to that word most, we also see the language of negation. The language of negation used. What do I mean by that? Well, the, the, very, the next phrase, he is most pure spirit in Visible. Well, that's a negative word. How is it negative? Well, that prefix in means not visible, right? And, and the purpose of these, the language of negation is to separate the creature from the creator. It's to identify God in, in, in unique ways. Because some of God's attributes are what theologians have referred to as communicable. They're shareable attributes. We are to be holy as God is holy. But are we ever most holy? No. Again, even perfected. Even when we are glorified and all the sin is, is, is gone completely, only God will be most holy. Only God will be most just. Most good. We may share those attributes, but only in a finite way. God is the infinite and full expression of all of his attributes. To, to paraphrase James Dole's all, all that is in God is God. So we want to think about this superlative language, this language of negation, and the result of that, the goal of that, the end purpose of that, is that we would just simply stand in awe or better yet, bow our faces in awe. That we would get to where Job finally did. I'll put my hand over my mouth in humble submission and worship to God, recognizing I will never comprehend him. I may apprehend him in the, in the words that he has, uh, by, by the words by which he's made himself known. But I can never know him as he fully is. And so the proper response is worship. 
The proper response is adoration. The proper response is, is humility. That I, that I am wholly other than God. That by His grace, there are ways in which I can become like Him. I was created in His image. As a, new, as a, as a believer, I am now a new creature in Christ, and I am progressively being conformed more and more to the image of Christ. All of us together are being conformed to the image of Christ. So we may, in, in those qualified ways, say that we are like God, but we can never say that God is like man, that God is like us. So part of the goal of the study of theology proper is devotion, it's worship, it's adoration, as we meditate and contemplate on who God is. We ought to be filled with a sense of, of wonder and awe. But there's, a, there's also an immediate and, and very practical goal of this as well. And that is a fuller, richer, more biblically faithful evangelism. A more rich, full, biblically faithful view of evangelism. In the contemporary sense, evangelism ordinarily starts with man and his need. Well, you've sinned against God. Okay, so what? Who is this God? What right does he have to tell me what I can and cannot do? And so when you begin with that, you've, you've lost something substantial. Evangelism needs to begin with God. There needs to be a sense of his holiness, a sense of his grandeur, a sense of his, his excellency that, that drives and, and, and fills our evangelism. If we start with theology proper, if we start with this question, who is God? Who is this God that you have offended? Who is this God from whom you are separated? Who is this God that one day will hold you to account? Whose face will you stand before one day? If you haven't already, turn with me to the book of Acts in chapter 17. I'm going to close with this, but I just want to, I'm going to, I just want to put a seed here in your mind. This is not going to be an exposition of the text, but I want to put a seed in your mind here. In Acts chapter 17, I think Paul gives to us, or the Holy Spirit, uh, through Paul, gives to us a, a model, a pattern for evangelism. Now, you, you know the scene. Paul is in Athens. And we're told in verse 16 that as he's waiting in Athens, his spirit is provoked. He's, he's, he's in angst. He's, he's grieved over the idolatry all around him. And in verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, <laughs> This austere, um, noble body of intellectuals. Can't you imagine the big white columns behind them as they sit on their marble thrones? And here's Paul, probably stooped by now, with scars on his back. Probably doesn't smell quite as nice as they do. Looking a little rough, probably hadn't shaved in three days. Maybe he's in the midst of his Nazarite vow and he's been longer. And he comes before this group, and he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Doesn't that apply to our culture? Can't we say, even those who, who will just vehemently say they're atheists, can't you see they're religious? Uh, even, even some you know, fairly prominent conservative atheists in our day have recognized 
the, the unmistakable characteristics of religion in the public square. Secularism is a religion. It's a different God, it's a different gospel, different sacraments, different ordinances, but it is a religion. And so Paul says, I, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands. What has Paul done? In very short order, he's, he's asserted God's eternality, his aseity, his immutability. The God who made the world and everything in it, he's the creator. He's being Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. He's asserted his God's independence since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Now he begins to talk about redemption. Some at Abraham here having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of men. So in Paul's evangelistic proclamation, where does he start? Theology proper. He starts with the doctrine of God. Now, it's, it's quite possible, in fact, it's likely that Luke doesn't record every word that Paul has said here. But he's given to us the gist of it. Paul begins his evangelistic appeal with the doctrine of God. He begins with theism first, and only later does he come to Christ. See, there, there is no Redeemer. There is no second person of the Trinity until there's a Godhead. And so Paul begins there. He doesn't assume that. And as, as you are talking with your own family members and co-workers, neighbors, um, extended family, bear this in mind that we, we cannot assume, even, even among Christians, we cannot assume that we're, that we're starting from the same place with respect to the doctrine of God. God has been re, reshaped and recast in the minds of men into our own image, right? Rather than God creating man in his image, man has gone about the business of creating, recreating God in theirs. And so even among our professing Christian neighbors and friends and co-workers and so on, we, we ought to be mindful of the fact that they, they may very well not have a biblical view of God. You may not have a biblical view of God. In fact, I can guarantee it, not one of us has a fully biblical view of God because, as we've already said, he's incomprehensible and our own indwelling sin prevents us. So I just want to plant that, that seed Paul starts with theism. He starts with the doctrine of God and moves then, and only then, to the doctrine of Christ. 
And so that, that ought to inform and shape our evangelism. And that's, that's one of the reasons that these paragraphs in, in chapter 2 of our confession are articulated in the ways that they are, is because one of the goals is, is to inform the minds of sinful men about how, how has God revealed himself? What has God revealed about himself? And how does that shape our understanding of the world around us? So let's pray. We've got just a, a few minutes before our worship. Father, we are grateful for your many mercies towards us. We pray for, for your, your abiding presence with us through your spirit. We ask for your help as we give our attention now uh, to your worship, which is justly due to you and, and is such a great benefit and blessing to us. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.